Welcome everyone back to Bible with Bill. We're super excited to be here. Bill's got a nice new haircut. I hope everyone's going to appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, it's freezing. <laughs> yeah, good time of year. And we are in the third in our series on 1 Timothy. We've done an introduction, we've looked at 1 Timothy 1, and now we're going to look at 1 Timothy 2, which I'm particularly excited about and have been looking forward to. So mm-hmm. over to you, Bill. Thank you very much, Alice. Hello, Hannah. Um, hello, everyone. Nice to be here. Uh, yes. So, um, this book, <laughs> Systematic Theology by Wayne Gruden, mm-hmm. um, if you want a big book of theology to answer difficult questions, um, I think most pastors have a copy of this in their office. Um, uh, certainly in the States. It's an Ameri- Wayne is a, an American, um, but it's kind of the standard systematic theology textbook. Um, and it's, it's certainly the most well-known, most theological students have used it in ev- it's in every theological library um, but it's respected in if you uh, so in this is a, a British version published by IVP respected you know good eggs in the Christian publishing world I think in America it's published by Zondervan um, so this is the standard theology textbook for most Christian students and ministers um, and on page 900 and something, um, Wayne covers a particular question. So, here we go. And Wayne's question is, should women, Alice, yeah. Hannah, should women be church officers? Which is a question people often ask. Should women be allowed to lead a church and teach in a church? Um, so, and I've got a slide for this. So I'm going to read it from the book. But if you're sitting at home, you can read along with me. Um, so the next one, I think, Hannah. There we go. So, yet the question remains, should women be pastors or elders in churches? My own conclusion on this issue is that the Bible does not permit women to function in the role of pastor or elder within a church. This has also been the conclusion of the vast majority of churches in various societies throughout history. The reasons that seem to be, to me, to be most persuasive in answering this question are the following. Number one. So Wayne's number one reason for this position that women should not lead and should not teach in churches. 1 Timothy 2, 11-14. The single passage, he says, the single passage in scripture that addresses this question most directly is 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 14. So, um, we are doing a series, this is part three, as Alice says, part three in the series about uh, looking at 1 Timothy and looking at how we um, read the Bible well, and particularly how we read Paul well. Um, And as Wayne says, these verses are the foundation for this position that's been shared by he says, most churches throughout most of history. Um, so, and the thing is, today, it's still a big issue. Um, I think in this country, it's kind of become less of an issue than it was 20 years ago. 
because 20 years ago it was a huge fight within the Anglican Church, the, the national um, established church. Um, should women be vicars? Should women be bishops? Um, and the, the Anglicans went through this funny two-stage process. There was a, a time when it was okay for a woman to be a vicar but not a bishop, which you kind of wonder why. You know, I, It's an either-or. If, if the argument is biblical, women should lead or not, then either they should be both or they should be neither. But anyway, uh, the, the Anglicans have now arrived at, at a position where a woman can be both a vicar and a bishop, and we have women bishops. Um, but it's still an argument, particularly in the States, it's an argument um, that uh, divides the church. And in this country, it's, a, it's an argument that still divides the Anglican church. There are still sections of the Anglican, Anglican church um, where, which do not accept uh, a woman vicar or a woman bishop and special arrangements have to be made for them. Obviously, in the Catholic Church, only a, a man can be a priest. Uh, so it's still one of the, the big um, arguments that Christians fight about. I reckon this and homosexuality are probably the, the two big ones where there are, there's discord, there's, there's fighting within the church. So it's a big issue. And according to Wayne, it all boils down to this one verse in 1 Timothy. Um, so there are things I like about Wayne's argument, and there are things I don't like about Wayne's argument. Um, what I like is that he says it's a biblical argument. Um, often this, this argument is characterized as you have the conservatives, the traditionalists, who are also the Bible people, and the Bible says one thing. And so if you take the Bible seriously then you shouldn't have women leaders. But then there are the, the modernizers who want to move with the times who take the Bible less seriously. And if you're in that camp, then you're fine with the idea of women leading. Um, and you're probably in favor of women leading because we need to move with the times. And so your position on this issue is a kind of indicator of how seriously you take the Bible. But I think that's a complete misrepresentation of the argument. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not interested in, in this, this podcast in church politics or you know, how we deal with society. What I'm interested in is how we read the Bible. So I'm, I agree it's a biblical question. I'm, I'm with Wayne on that. I just think he's fundamentally mistranslating those verses and doing enormous damage in the con uh, in consequence, um, and so I want to take the rest of the the time to explain why that is, to look at these verses, and explain why I think his interpretation and the way he uses the Bible here is so dodgy, but also so damaging. Um, if that's all right, because what Wayne doesn't say. In his quote, he, he, he just says, this is what the Bible says. And I'm afraid that is enormously debatable. It's contested what, how those verses should be translated. Um, so, for example, Rich Nathan, who is the, the, one of the vineyard theologians, you know, he, he's a pastor of a vineyard church, but he's also a Bible scholar. He, um, 
he wrote an article about this this question and these verses, and he reckons there are twenty five separate issues, problems, difficulties with how you translate these verses. Um, we haven't got time this morning to look at twenty five <laughs> different problems, but I'm going to look at four of them. Um, because and so this is this is a, an overview of the issues. It's uh, it's not an easy verse to translate, but I'm going to give you a flavour of the debate about these verses, if that's all right. Um, so let's have a quick look at. The, can we read through the passage? passage so, no, the next there. So these are the verses. Uh, Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. Now that's the NRSV. That's the version that Wayne quotes in his book. And if all you, if all, if all you know is that, it looks pretty absolute. Wouldn't you agree? If you're someone who takes the Bible seriously, he says, let a woman learn in science. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. It sounds pretty absolute, doesn't it? If you're a serious Bible person, well, that's it. Game's up. Um, it's not as simple as that. Here are the, here are the four issues that I'm going to look at, if that's all right. Is that all right? Yeah. Are we doing right. okay so far? Are you good. okay at home? Okay, yeah. let's carry on. Um, so, number one. Can I have the next slide, please, Hannah? Um, so I've highlighted silence. Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. He uses the same word uh, in twice in two sentences. And I think that's important because actually that's the theme for this whole chapter is this idea of silence, except it's not this idea of silence. The, the Greek word is hezukia. Now let's go back eight verses to 1 Timothy 2 verse 2. Uh, so, this is 1 Timothy 2, verse 2, same version. Let's read it. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving should be made for everyone, for kings and all in high positions, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. Now, that word, which here is translated quiet, in the sense of peaceful, you know, not stirring up trouble, but leading a quiet life. Guess which word, which Greek word, is here translated as quiet, meaning calm and peaceful? Hezukia. Isn't it interesting that when we're talking about the kind of lives that we should lead, hezukia means quiet and peaceful, but when it comes to the, how women should behave in church, the same, the identical word gets translated silent. Mm. Now, obviously, quiet can mean both. Mm. But it's interesting that, um, that, that the NRSV translates its silence when it's about the behavior of women in church rather than peaceful. Mm. You know, being submissive, quiet respectful, not stirring up trouble. Interesting. Um, but that's just a start. That's to get us going. Uh, 
next slide, please, Hannah. Um, so, let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. The, quest, the fundamental question is, is this a command for that particular situation at that time? Mm. Or is this a universal command for mm. all churches, all Christians in all times and all places? Mm. That's the issue here. Is it local and specific or is it a general command that applies to us all? In other words, does it apply to us or just to this church in Ephesus in a particular situation that Timothy was dealing with? I think there are a couple of interesting things in this bit where he says, I permit no woman. Uh, so the NRSV translates it as, I permit no woman. Um, the first thing is, um, Paul is very clear about, because he's all of these letters, he's writing and giving advice to churches about how they should operate. And he's quite clear about when he is issuing a command which has the authority of Jesus and when he's just offering some advice. Uh, so there's a fascinating bit in 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, so next slide, please. Um, where he says he's, he's talking about marriage and divorce. And he says, to the married, I give this command. But then he corrects himself. He said, actually, not I, but the Lord. Because he's about to quote a command of Jesus that married believers shouldn't get divorced. And so he, he corrects himself. He says, to the married, I give this command. But actually, it's not me. It's Jesus. Not I, but the Lord. In other words, this is a universal command for all times and all places. Two verses later, he says, to the rest, I say this. But then he says, actually, this is me. Just in case you're unclear about where this is coming from, this is me, not the Lord. In other words, this is how I think you should behave in this situation. Paul doesn't know he's writing scripture. Paul is just writing a letter to a church. It's only, you know, subsequent generations who started to say, actually, maybe God was speaking through this. This has the authority of scripture. But Paul makes that differentiation. And so bearing that in mind, if we go, I don't know if it's going back or going on. And let's go back, Hannah. Go back. He says, I permit, I permit no woman to teach or to have authority. So simply saying, I permit no woman, out of those two options, having looked at the way Paul makes the distinction, what's he saying? What authority is he claiming here? And there's more here, which is the actual Greek, gunaiki uk epitrepo. Um, the uk is the negative in the middle. And it... So, and the trouble with Greek is you, the word order is less important. So does the uk, the, the negative, apply to the woman, as the NRSV says? So I permit no woman. Or does it apply to the I, I permit? So I don't allow. I don't allow a woman. It can mean either. But it's interesting that the NRSV, that Wayne Gruden quotes, um, says, I permit no woman, which sounds like a thou shalt not for all times and all places. 
Whereas Paul may simply be saying, this is how I deal with things. I don't permit a woman to do this. It can be read either way. And that's the problem. It's not clear. It's one of Rich Nathan's 25 questions. Okay, with me so far? Okay, we're rattling through this quite quickly. Um, But this is the big one. Okay, there's one fundamental issue. There's, there's one issue out of the 25 that towers over all the others. Um, and it's this one. Next slide, please. So, um, I permit no woman to teach or to, to have authority. Um, the Greek word that the NRSV translates as to have authority is authentane. I've got it at the bottom in, in blue, if you happen to read um, Greek. So, authentane to have authority. Um, there are big, big issues with this word. Fundamentally, it probably doesn't mean to have authority. Um, it's difficult because it's a very, very rare word. Um, it's what's known as a hapax legomenon. In other words, a, a word that only occurs once in the whole Bible. Mm-hmm. So the Greek Bible, the, the um, Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament and the Greek New Testament, uh, authentane just occurs here. So it's an extremely rare word. But there are plenty of common words for yeah. authority. That exousia yeah. is the standard Greek word for um, for authority, which Paul uses again and again. It occurs 102 times mm. in the New Testament, exousia. But Paul here ignores exousia and reaches for authentane, mm. which is an extremely rare word. Um, what does it mean? It, Another problem with authentane is if you look at all of Greek literature, so not just the Bible, it's one of those words that that changed its meaning rapidly over time. So it's slippery, it's hard to pin down. Um, You know, it's a bit like when when my daughters say something is sick. Mm. You know, (laughs) sick means something very different today from what if you're in that that generation. Um, So authentane changed its meaning. Um, but here are a couple of examples. So I, I said, I, I just said it, it only occurs once in the Bible, and that's true if you're in the Protestant tradition, um, because you may know that some Bibles, like this one, have a middle bit, um, which, if you're in the Protestant tradition, you call it the Apocrypha. Um, so here is here's the middle bit, the Apocrypha. So you get to the end of the Old Testament, um, and before you get to the New Testament, there's what we call the Apocrypha. Um, but the Apocrypha is recognised as scripture by the Eastern Orthodox and the Catholics. So Catholic Bibles include it as the Bible. Um, uh, technically, they're known as the Deuterocanonical books. But one of the, one of these books is the Wisdom of Solomon, which was written in the first century BC. Um, and the wisdom of Solomon includes, there's one place where it uses the word authentane, and I've got it here, it's chapter 12. Uh, next slide, please, Hannah. So, somewhere in this paragraph is the word authentane. Can you guess which of these words um, is authentane? 
Those who lived long ago in your holy land, you hated for their detestable practices, their works of sorcery and unholy rites, these parents who murder helpless lives. Which word is authentic? Translated as murder. So in the wisdom of Solomon, written a hundred years or so before Paul writes to Timothy, authentic means to murder. I mean, literally, it means to do with one's own hand. But it always meant something violent. So either to violently attack someone or kill them, or, or it was also used to, to commit suicide. I'm authenticating myself. Um, over time, it changed. But let's look a hundred years or so after uh, Paul wrote to Timothy. So this is my second example of the use of authentic. This is uh, Ptolemy of Alexandria, so an Egyptian. Um, and this is a first for Bible with Bill. We're looking at a book of astrology. Nice. Okay, so this is Egyptian astrology from a century after, um, a century after Paul wrote. Uh, this is the Tetrabiblos, so the fourth book. That of astrology that Ptolemy, who is a great authority, if you're interested in astrology and want to know more, then read Ptolemy. Um, so, and here he uses the word, the verb authentain. Um, Therefore, if Saturn alone takes planetary control of the soul and dominates Mercury and the moon. So here it's morphed from murder to dominate. So take control over. Um, Authentesas, Mercury and the Moon. Um, and so it can mean, you know, a hundred years before Paul, it meant murder in, in the wisdom of Solomon. A hundred years after, it meant to dominate, to seize control. Um, it's true that by the early Middle Ages, it was sometimes used, there are some examples where it, it was used to mean to have authority but before Paul in Paul's time and for hundreds of years after there are no examples in all of Greek literature where authenteo means to have authority and there are plenty of other words which Paul could have chosen if he'd simply wanted to say um, a woman shouldn't have authority interesting um so the question is, why did he use that rare, unusual word in this one occasion? What was he trying to say? Um, there's one. So out of our four uh, issues with this verse, there's one more I want to look at, if that's all right. We're kind of diving deep into yes. the, the language. Yeah. But, but what I want to do is give a flavor of the questions that yeah. by, by biblical interpreters are wrestling with. Uh, because sometimes it's clear and sometimes it's unclear. And actually, my fundamental point is, when it's unclear, we need to say so. We need to be honest about it. Um, so my final example is, um, I got this from Linda Belleville, who's a very good biblical scholar. Um, she points out that um, this grammatical construction... So, so Paul says, in, according to the NRSV, uh, NRSV, I don't permit a woman to teach or to have authority. 
Um, when, uh, and it's two infinitives in the Greek. So didaskain, to teach, and authentain, to have authority or to dominate. Um, and Linda Belleville points out that when you have that construction, it can mean to teach or to have authority, or it can mean to teach in order to have authority, or to teach in order to seize control or to dominate. And so she gives an example in Matthew 6, where Jesus is talking about uh, where you store your treasure. And, he, and Jesus talks about storing your treasure on earth where, ste- where, where thieves break in and steal. And it's the same construction. To break in and to steal are both infinitives. And so the sense is to break in in order to steal. And so that's her example where the same construction means break in, uh, uh, applied to our verse could mean to teach in order to dominate or to teach in order to have authority, depending on how you translate authentic. Um, so those are the four issues if we put it all together if we came up with the the authorised bill version instead of the NRSV <laughs> what is an equally valid translation of these two verses um, next slide please so up the top we have the NRSV Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. I reckon, based on what I've just explained, you could just as legitimately translate that Greek text into let a woman learn quietly with full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach in order to dominate a man or to teach so that she dominates a man. She is to remain peaceful. Okay. Now, at the moment, my sole argument is that both of those are equally valid interpretations. I don't actually believe that because I think authentane casts a real doubt over the, the NRSV translation. But for the time being... Let's just suppose that those are equally valid translations. Um, what do you do? Because often when you're a Bible translator, you come across these situations where the text on its own could mean one thing or it could mean another. Well, if you think back to the first of the... Do you remember the first of these 1 Timothy podcasts? We looked at how you translate Paul. Um, and, and the fact that Paul's letters are difficult because they're letters and they're letters to particular people in particular times and places uh, and so how do you help to make sense of uh, these, the, the difficulties in translating Paul's letters um, the number one thing you do is look at context mm. so that's what I want to, do, want to do next I want to look at both the the biblical context, so this text within 1 Timothy and within the whole Bible. But I also, and first of all, I want to look at the historical context. Was there anything in particular in the place where Timothy was in Ephesus 
in AD 60 that casts light on how, out of these two possible translations, which is more likely. You see, the, the trouble with my translation is it sounds like there's a kind of full-blown feminist movement. You know, the sisterhood mm. is alive and well and living in Ephesus mm. and disrupting the church meetings. Mm. Now, was that really going on? Surely women's liberation and the feminist movement only really got going in the 60s and 70s in California. Mm. So how come, you know, am I, not, am I not simply reading back into this text something that's, that's very much of today's world? Well, let's have a look. Um, is this, are you with me? Yeah. Is it making yeah. sense? Yeah, okay, so here we go. Sense. So next slide, please. Um, oh yeah, sorry, I missed this bit. So uh, you might think, well, Bill, you've come up with your own version, but I've never heard this before. You know, I want to demonstrate that I'm not the only one saying this. This is um, the message version. So this is how Eugene Peterson translates these two verses. He says, I don't let women take over and tell the men what to do. They should study to be quiet and obedient along with everyone else. That's what Eugene reckons these verses mean. So it's not just me. And the thing is, Eugene, uh, people laugh at the message because they think it's very, because it's so readable and chatty, they think it can't be a very accurate translation. Eugene Peterson is a serious Bible scholar. He knows exactly what he's doing. He, 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 he was... Um, he died recently. He was a very um, serious scholar of both Greek and Hebrew, which is why he was a very good person to come up with his own translation. But also he was free of the whole structure of most Bible translations and the kind of inertia that he was free to come up with, to take the Greek text and translate it into, um, into everyday English. Um, so there you go. But, but uh, next one, please. So this is a book uh, by a scholar called Bruce Winter, um, who's an interesting guy. He's an Australian who taught at Cambridge for a long time. Um, and he was a classic scholar. Um, so he, he was a scholar of, the, um, of Greece and Rome, and Greek and Roman history and language. Um, but he was also um, a biblical scholar. And his particular contribution was he realised that um, a lot of Bible scholars translate the New Testament um, without a really good understanding of what the Greek and the Roman world was like. Um, and it's a problem that we can all be uh, suffer with. You know, we we read, for example, Paul talking about slavery, and because of where we sit in history, when we hear the word slavery, we think of the transatlantic slave trade, and we assume that Paul's talking about that. Um, and what Bruce Winter did was say, well, actually, you need to understand slavery in the Greek and Roman world. And so he, he wrote books about how to read Paul with an understanding of slavery in the Greek and Roman world. But he also um, made a major contribution to how we should read Paul, where Paul writes about women and about divorce 
and about sex and sexuality, we need to. Un- it's very easy to assume that he's talking to us, mm. but he's talking to people who were very, very different, mm. and. And it's important to understand the world that he was talking to. So he wrote this this book, Roman Wives and Roman Widows. Um, and I just want to give a brief overview of some of the things that he pointed out. So if you were a wife, and particularly if you were a wife of a, a kind of uh, wealthier, more respectable man in the Roman Empire, what was your life like? Uh, Basically, it, it was a it was a very paternalistic society, and women, wives, had a very restricted role. Um, and in in the Romans in the Roman world, you could you could tell pe- who people were by how they dressed. And what I want to do is show you a, a Roman statue of a typical Roman wife. Um, so next one, please. There she is. If you were a wife of a respectable Roman gentleman, you had to wear this kind of dressing gown. These very heavy clothes that completely hid your figure and covered you up. You also had to wear a head covering. And the head covering was really important because it showed that you were a woman under a husband's authority. Um, And... And that idea of what a, a wife's uh, role was that's communicated by the, what they wore was reflected in their whole life. The, the woman's job was to bear children and to look after the household. And um, as far as the woman was concerned, the purpose of sex was to have children mm. and nothing more. Mm. Because for sex... The husband went elsewhere. Mm. Now, it's important to understand this is respectable behavior in the Roman world because there are other kinds of women. Mm. As well as wives, there were, um, there were two different kinds of prostitute. Mm. So there were women who were pornai, mm. and a pornai was a, uh, or porna, was a woman who was working on the streets or working in a brothel. Um, but there were also hetaira, and hetaira were much more like what we would call a high-class call girl or a mistress or a courtesan. They might have only they might have only one client when they'd be like a mistress. They might have two or three clients, but their job was to accompany wealthy Roman husbands to dinners. And they would go to these dinners, and their job was to to be able to conduct themselves at these dinners, to have intelligent conversation. They were well-educated. They were were entertaining. They were good conversationalists. They were good at making these men feel important and and appreciated. But they also wore um, very extravagant clothes. They, they distinguished themselves by what they wore. Now, Bible with Bills are get, about to get very racy. So here's a health warning. I'm about to show you a photograph, not a photograph, well, a photograph of a mosaic so, or, a, or a paint. No, actually, it's a, a wall painting. So this is how a hetaira... Now, look at the contrast. If you were a hetaira, 
you wore very elegant um, clothes, uh, gold and blue-coloured cloths. You, your hair was your main, um, your main attraction. They, ha- they wore incredibly elaborate hairstyles. Often with go- in this picture, there's gold, a gold kind of tiara or something woven into the hairstyle. Sometimes gold was threaded into their hair. And they wore lots of gold jewellery. Um, and here we have a Hatara doing what Hatara did, what they were for, which was entertaining a man at one of these luxurious dinners with fine food and fine wine. Now, if you're a girl in Roman society at that time, what do you want to be when you grow up? On the one hand, you could stay at home, basically be a child-producing machine who looks after the household, but doesn't get much love and affection or attention from your husband. Or you could go to fancy dinner parties, dressed in finery, fine food and fine wine, and have all sorts of treats lavished upon you. And the thing was, in, uh, in the hundreds of years or so before Paul, Roman wives, particularly wealthy Roman wives, rebelled. They didn't like this anymore. And the law changed. Up to that point, um, if you got married, if you're very, a wealthy woman, you brought a dowry to the, to the uh, marriage. If you got divorced, the husband kept all the money. So you were destitute. So if you chose to be a wife, you'd stay a wife. Something changed in the law that meant women, if they got divorced, could retain all the wealth that they brought to the marriage. And so this new category of woman was created, and they were known as the new Roman women. And they scandalized society, because they were wives who rejected the idea of the the role of what a wife should be. Because they were wives who wanted a life like their husbands had. And so they separated themselves from their domestic duties. They walked out on their families. They set themselves up in in smart apartments. And they took young lovers, young male lovers. They wanted what their husbands had. And this was the new Roman woman. And the funny thing was, Roman society was scandalized by this. It was fine when the husbands did it. That was respectable and acceptable. When women started to play the same game, it was absolutely scandalous. Um, but that was the, the culture war that was going on in Roman society in the hundred years or so before Paul um, was writing. So particularly around the time of Julius Caesar and Cicero, about 40 BC, uh, this was going on. The trouble was, uh, young in, in Roman society, you had different... Uh, it was very hierarchical. And most leading uh, politicians, people in the government, the leaders of the military, they were all taken from the patrician class. They weren't the plebs, they were the patricians. And if you were from these families, you were expected to produce children who would fill these higher roles in, in the upper echelons of Roman society. The trouble was the new Roman women started doing their thing and the young patrician men no longer wanted to get married. 
because suddenly they could have this lovely life with a slight, a wealthy, slightly older woman mm. going to parties, having lots of sex, having fine, you know, food and wine. Why get married? Mm. And Roman society suddenly realized that the next generation of patrician children who are going to grow up and fill these roles was getting a bit thin on the ground. And so something was done. The Emperor Augustus in 17 BC introduced laws to try and restrict this. Um, and basically the laws were about expulsion. If, if women behaved like this, if they walked out on their their families and their family responsibilities and took the money they could do that but they couldn't do it in Rome mm. they had to be banished to the to the provinces uh, he started this campaign in 17 BC it wasn't enough so he introduced more laws in AD 9 to, to strengthen this idea that new Roman women should clear out of Rome it even applied to his own daughter his own daughter was one of these women and she, her behaviour meant she was banished from Rome. Okay, so that's part of the context, mm. part of the culture that Paul is writing in. But there's a second thing, which is, if you're a new Roman woman, mm. you're banished from Rome, but you want to pursue, the, you know, you, you're enjoying your newfound lifestyle and freedoms, you've got the cash... Mm. Where in the Roman Empire are you going to go? There was one place above all. It's a bit like if you were gay in America in the 1970s, where are you going to go? You would either go to New York or to San Francisco. And it was just the same, I think, in, in the Roman Empire. If you were a new Roman woman, you were banished from Rome. There was one place above all where you would go. Um... Next slide, please. Oh, yeah, sorry, I, I skipped on a bit as well. Yeah, oh, <laughs> here's the fundamental bit of my argument. Um, we've been looking at these two verses in 1 Timothy 2, the, the, the verses that um, Paul quotes, sorry, that, that Wayne Gruden quotes in, in, his, in his article. What are the two verses before that? So we've been looking at 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 and 12. What do 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10 say? I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Who does Paul have in mind, given what we now know about Roman society? He wants women to be respectable. The new Roman women scandalise society. And sorry, that's something that was quite important to the <laughs> argument. Okay, but anyway, where, where are these women going to go? Um, do you know what this building is? There's no reason why you should. This is the Artemisium. Um, the Artemisium was the temple of the goddess Artemis. Where was the Artemisium? It was in Ephesus. Because where was Artemis born? Where was Ephesian Artemis born? Uh, in, in, according to uh, Ephesian mythology, well, she was born near Ephesus. She was the, the, 
the local deity. But the thing about Artemis and, and the Artemisium, the Artemisium uh, was one of the seven wonders of the world. Mm. And some writers said out of the seven it was number one. Because mm. this, this is a model of the Artemisium. It looks a bit like the, um, the Parthenon, the same kind of design as the Parthenon, which survives in Athens on the Acropolis. But the Artemisium was four times bigger than the, than the Parthenon. Mm. This was a huge um, religion in Ephesus. It was also big business. Mm. It was dominant. Um, the, uh, s- some archaeologists uh, l- looked at all the inscriptions that have been recovered from Ephesus. Mm. 30% of them mention Artemis Um, and if you think about all the inscriptions in a typical Greco-Roman city there were tens of different gods, tens of and all sorts of different temples religion was very pluralistic you you could believe in any number of gods and there were local gods, there were the Greek gods, the Roman gods there was emperor worship, there were mystery religions But in Ephesus, Artemis was absolutely dominant. And it was big, big business. Um, The Artemisium, as well as being a temple, was a bank. Mm -hmm. And some said it was the biggest bank in the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. Um, On on the temple staff were bankers as well as priests. Mm -hmm. Um, So it it was big business. Now, who was Artemis? Next slide, please. Who was Artemis? Uh, there she is, a funny-looking girl. Um, she was uh, she's in uh, in Greek. She was known as Artemis. In in Roman, she was known as Diana. Um, she was the sister of Apollo, um, or she kind of became that as Ephesus as Ephesus became part of the Greek Empire. Um, the, the the gods of the Greco-Roman world tended to morph, you know, depending on the history, and you know they they, they were very happy to change um, gods and goddesses from one to another as different empires came and went. Mm. Um, but Ephesian Artemis, there she is. She's covered in these kind of. There's all sorts of debate about what those things are. But she's either got lots of little breasts, but probably not. Or their grapes or their eggs, because she symbolized fertility and fruitfulness. Um, that's what she was known for. She was also the goddess of childbirth and childbearing, which is quite significant because in that time that was probably the riskiest part of life. So, who do you call out for if you want to be kept safe? Will you call out for Artemis? But there was one thing in particular which made her kind of the centre of the feminist, which made Ephesus the centre of the feminist movement in the Greco-Roman world, which was she was... uh, uh, Artemis and Apollo were twins, but she was born first. Mm. She was the big sister. And if you wanted a symbol of women, female authority, women leadership, it was Artemis. So in the Artemisium, the priesthood were all female. They were all priesthood. The bankers were female, except for the men who'd been castrated. 
And so it was about girl power. Mm. And it was also about the emasculation of men. Mm. It was about the, the women seizing control mm. and being dominant. That was the local religion. And when we read in Acts 19 about the trouble that Paul caused when he went to Ephesus, because all the people were making lots of money um, out of Artemis and Artemis worship and making statues of Artemis, they, their business was threatened by Paul and his, his message. Um, because Paul, you know, one of the things was a kind of um, this culture war was threatened by Paul's message about how men and women should um, live and work together mm. rather than this idea of, of conflict. Mm. Um, so let's put it all together. Mm. What we're trying to do is understand which of these two um, possible translations of, of these two verses in, in one, 1 Timothy 2, which is more likely. And out of the, the two translations that I, I've offered, given what we now know about the, the culture war that was going on in the Roman Empire, is it, is it possible that when Paul is talking about women not seizing control, not doing down the men, illicitly taking authority, and instead learning, um, learning peacefully... Is that a scenario that actually is is conceivable? Mm. And I'd suggest it probably is, mm. knowing what we know now. Um, but there's a there's a second bit of context I just want to briefly look at. Um, and the first bit is in one Timothy itself. Mm. Uh, so next slide, please, Hannah. Um, so actually, this is this is from two Timothy. Um, what's our scenario that we've been working with in, in uh, that, that was going on what was the situation in the church in Ephesus that Timothy was dealing with mm. and that Paul was writing to him about uh, so far we've been talking about false teachers mm. Paul's main message is Timothy stop these teachers from teaching this troublesome stuff that's stirring up arguments and fights in the church uh, and Instead of this, this bad teaching, do good teaching instead. There are strong hints mm. in both 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy that these teachers were finding their, their, their biggest audience among women mm. and a certain kind of women, um, among young, wealthy women. Mm. These were the households where they were finding a particular audience. And we see it in 1 Timothy 5, but we see it particularly in 2 Timothy 3, in these verses. Um, talking about the false teachers, he says, they're the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women, who are loaded down, and these women are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Isn't that interesting? These women are finding it hard to learn the truth. Now, isn't that exactly what Paul is saying in 1 Timothy 2? These women just need to, you know, listen, learn, learn the good stuff rather than the unhelpful stuff. It seems to be the case from this that 
the problem was you had uh, reckless teachers, false teachers, who were finding an audience among a certain group of women. And that's where the, the, the source of the trouble in, in the church is. Um, we're putting together a picture. Final bit of evidence from the Bible, though, is to look at Paul's practice. Because if Paul, if you still believe that what Paul is saying in 1 Timothy 2 is that no woman should teach or have authority, and that's a rule that applies to all times and all places, then what do we learn about Paul's practice? Is his, teach, is his practice in line with his teaching? Does he do what he says? And what we find is that actually he worked with women and he worked with and recognized women in positions of authority in the very churches that he planted. Um, and the classic example is the end of Romans. So the final chapter of Romans is a bit like a, a kind of you know, the end credits at the end of a movie. He ba Paul basically says hello to all of the people he knows in Rome. But it's a fascinating list. Um, let's have a look at some of the examples. So the people he says hello to in the church in Rome. Um, verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sencria. A deacon. So here's Phoebe. Hello, Phoebe. A deacon in the church. Now, is that a position of authority? Well, yeah, pretty much. I mean, it means someone who serves. But if you think about the deacons in the Jerusalem church, people like Stephen, mm. you, you carefully chose the people who could lead by serving. Mm. Um, so there's Phoebe. But let's move on. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Priscilla and Aquila, uh, husband and wife, um, they risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. But then listen to this. Greet also the church that meets at their house. So Priscilla and Aquila have a big house. The early church was house churches. The early church met in people's houses. They met in the houses of wealthy people in a city like Priscilla and Aquila. Who led those early house churches? It was the owner of the house. The people whose house it, it was. They were de facto the leaders of the church. So Priscilla and Aquila are church leaders. But look how Paul lists them. Whenever he lists Priscilla and Aquila, he names Priscilla first. Who wears the trousers in, in that leadership pair? Well, it suggests that, you know, at the very least, Priscilla and Aquila are jointly leading the church. Um, interestingly, at the end of uh, 2 Timothy, Paul, um, the, Priscilla and Aquila have moved from Rome to Ephesus. And at the end of 2 Timothy, Paul says, Hello, Priscilla and Aquila. <laughs> So in, in the second letter that Paul writes to Timothy in Ephesus, he, 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 um, he says hello to Priscilla and Aquila, the church leaders from Rome. Now, is it conceivable that in 1 Timothy he's saying, no woman, I do not permit a woman to have authority? 
when in two Timothy he's saying, hello Priscilla, church leader, doesn't seem feasible to me. But my favourite example is this one. This is uh, verse 7. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews, who've been in prison with me. Now Andronicus and Junia, like Priscilla and Aquila, they're probably husband and wife, possibly uh, brother and sister. Um, but they are outstanding among the apostles and they were in Christ before, before I was. So they, Andro, Andronicus and either his wife or his sister Junia are not just apostles, they're outstanding among the apostles. There are only 15 or 16 apostles who are named in the New Testament and Junia is one of them. Now how can Paul... Uh, in one place, say, I permit no woman to have authority over a man. And yet in, in other places, be saying hello to Phoebe and Priscilla and Junior, who, and recognise that they are leaders in the church. Either you believe Paul is the most enormous hypocrite, or I'd suggest that this undermines a reading of 1 Timothy 2, uh, 12 that says women cannot have authority. Um, it's up to you to decide. Okay? Mm -hmm. So we've looked at the, the problems in translation of the verse. We've looked at the historical context. We've looked at the biblical context. Um, here are some conclusions. Um, If you remember the talk I did, the, the podcast we did two sessions ago, uh, I, I came up with a number of pieces of advice about reading Paul. And one of them was, sometimes it's unclear and we need to be honest about that. Now, my argument here isn't that Wayne Grudem is definitely wrong in his, or the NRSV is wrong in its translation. What, what I'm saying is there are two there are lots of difficulties in how you translate that verse mm. and there's a range of possible meanings it's possible that authentane means to have authority mm. it's extremely unlikely mm. because there are no examples of that um, in any of Greek literature for, for hundreds of years uh, until, uh, until hundreds of years after Paul. So it seems very unlikely. But it's possible. It's possible that the NRSV gets it absolutely right. I don't think so, but it's possible. But we need to be honest. Mm. We need to be honest about... We, we shouldn't pretend to most Christians who don't understand Greek and don't understand the historical context... We, sh we, we shouldn't pretend that something clearly says something when it doesn't. And that's what bothers me about this. Um, because there's no hint from Wayne Gruden's bit about should women lead that there's any question that that's a good translation or not. Uh, even worse is Bible translation. There's, there's no hint in the, the NIV which is, has been the best-selling Bible for the last 50 years. If you look, look at 1 Timothy 2.12, there isn't even a footnote 
saying that the that any other translation, any other interpretation of that verse is possible. And so most people who take the Bible seriously and trust Bible translators, um, they're going to believe this is what the Bible says. And, and hopefully what I've demonstrated is that simply isn't the case. And that the honest thing to do is to say it might mean this or it might mean that. And here's the evidence. Um, and I think in particular, you shouldn't build church doctrine on such a shaky foundation. You know, it, Wayne himself said, most churches in most of history have not had women leaders, and the number one reason is because of this verse. Mm. Now, if you're building church doctrine on a foundation like this, the risk is that you're... Well, here's the risk. Let, let's suppose that God distributes leadership gifts equally. I mean, I, I don't think he does, but let's, let's suppose that he distributes leadership gifts equally between men and women. Then for most of history, 51% of those who are equipped to lead by God have not been able to, have not had an opportunity to. What has that done to the health of the church throughout history, if that's the case? And, and that's my real argument here. I think if, if you're going to lay down the law about what people are allowed to do and not allowed to do in church, you need a pretty solid foundation. And it seems to me that um, at best you could say that the evidence is questionable, it's debatable, um, and there should be a debate. And, and Bible translators and, and systematic theologians just be honest about the evidence is shaking. Um, I think church leadership according to gifting and competent character. Um, and that's pretty much what, in, in 1 Timothy, uh, Paul talks about selecting elders and deacons. His criteria is character. Mm. It doesn't mention their sex. Mm. Um, yeah, so that's, that's my second point. The third one is, you might be standing on the chairs and cheering now because I've said exactly what you want to hear. And having just been quite critical of Wayne Bruden and the NIV Translation Committee, I want to say we're all guilty of this. We, if you're standing on the chairs and cheering, why, why is that? Is it because I've just come up with an argument that supports what you want to believe? Mm -hmm. um, we, and the thing is, we all do it. We all read the newspapers that confirm what we already think, mm -hmm. that echo our, our existing beliefs. We look for the, if we're Christians, we look for the preachers and teachers who will tell us what we already believe, who we agree with. And that's, we, we look for the churches that mm -hmm. believe what we already believe. Um, and so as, as well as being critical, I want to say we all do it. Because the, what's the Bible's job? The Bible's job is to change our minds mm. and to transform our thinking mm. and to challenge what we already believe. Mm. 
and and yes, here um, when we're looking at one Timothy two twelve, I'm saying uh, how how ready are we to let it change people's minds here because it's moving our beliefs in it's moving other people's beliefs in a direction that we want them to move in how happy are we when the bible challenges something that we currently believe um when was the last time the bible changed your mind um that's my final point yeah if that's all right that is absolutely brilliant thank you very much bill that's all right thanks for having me alice um can I just, I'm just trying to remember, is that those verses after about men not holding their hat, not being in anger, but holding up their hands in worship? Yes, they're, they're just before. Just before I think that. Six and so, seven, five, six, seven. Yeah, what I felt, I sort of suddenly, what I loved about what you brought is it just brought a lot of scattered little kind of insights all sort of together and brought this clarity of basically like men don't be violent and lead and women don't be you know whether it was I've heard of those murderous translations earlier Mm. in the Greek texts or other Greek literature or or, or just violent in spirit dominant coercive and and learn in such a way that that you can lead and teach in such a way that's godly yeah not um heresy absolutely um so it felt oh yeah okay it just felt like aligned kingdom leadership looks like laying down your life and serving men and women yeah and particularly i think in that context they were were clearly dealing with with a contextual issue around um women in ephesus at the time and i just i just found that really helpful and it almost ironically to me affirms agency in men and women but also reminds us kingdom agency is very different from agency in the world. Absolutely. It's never about dominance, coercion, control. It's always about servant-hearted leadership. Yeah. And it almost sort of recovers that. And the fact that Paul calls it out with women is actually honouring to me. Yeah. I think when, God, when Paul calls out things in people, he's saying, you're more than this, you're higher than this. And there's nothing ever patronising about that. I actually think that's very empowering, yeah. both for men and women, to say you're more than this. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I, th- I think the, the dominant theme throughout the whole of chapter two is mm. about quietness yeah. and peacefulness. Yeah. And that's the, the yeah. thread that links it through. Yeah. And yeah, so women don't raise, men don't raise your, your hands and invite yeah. them, but raise them in prayer. Yeah. Yes. And women don't squabble and cause, you know, yeah. cause friction. Mm. Um, we all need to submit Mm. you know women should submit Mm. because we should all submit to Mm. one another because that's how you become a peaceful community a quiet community Um, I think that's right Um, but also there was something else you said it's gone Um, oh yeah but what we what we miss in these in these two verses is um, can we go back Hannah to show the um Verses 11 and 12 I'll do the full screen context Yeah Which one do you want? Uh, All the way back near the start Um, So uh, Yeah, here we go This one? Yeah Uh, Oh no, the one before Yeah So Even the NRSV says Let a woman learn Mm. 
Yeah. What we tend to miss yeah. is how radical that was Absolutely. for those days. Yeah. It reminds me of um, Mary yeah. and Martha. Exactly. Yeah. Why does Martha get upset with her sister? Yeah. Because a woman's place is with Martha in the kitchen. Mm. What's Mary doing sitting at Jesus' feet and learning? That's mm. what the men do. Mm. Learning was a male activity. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the kind of um, intellectual study, mm. learning. Why learn? Because mm. then you can operate in a man's mm. world. Women don't need to learn. Mm. Their job is children and domestic mm. activities. Yeah. And so it's, I think, even that bit, yeah. which we tend to skip over, yeah, was, is, was radical. Yeah. Um, and, and it's inclusive. Yeah. You know, women, you come in and learn yeah. along with the men. Yeah. But here's the deal. You can yeah. only do it if you actually learn. Yeah. You know. That's uh, it. And, yeah. and don't listen to those guys. Yes. But yeah. listen to this. Yeah. I think that's what, what yeah. Paul is saying. Yeah, I I completely agree. Um, Yeah, I really really like what you're teaching us about how to read the Bible well. And I like how you're doing it in what you've just role-modelled is how to do it in the middle of a culture war well. And I think that's really helpful. And my takeaway is that you should always come, not always, but you want to be changed by the word, and I agree with that. For me, I love that emphasis on being quiet, quietness and peacefulness, and actually in a world of disquiet and 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 increasing anger and so on, the, that is good news, isn't it? That mm. we can be a community that are reconciled between men and women, Jew and Greek, slave and free. We're a reconciled community Absolutely. that can live peaceful lives. Yeah. That and and we can always learn and grow in our in our knowledge and love of God, and we can be peaceful. It's just. It's a beautiful countercultural message then, but also I think now. So that would be my takeaway. Absolutely, it's not a war. No, it's, it's not. It's, it, that's, yeah. it's funny that yeah. it's very easy to take sides exactly. in a culture war. Yeah. Is it men? Oh, you're on the yeah. women's side or the men's yeah. side? And, yeah. and I think this is actually something different. Yeah, and I, I think it's, it's a better, more beautiful way. Yeah. It really is. So I am going to end in a prayer now. Lovely. I think that would be great. Lord, I thank you so much um, for Bill. I thank you for the way you've uh, formed his mind. I thank you for the work that he does. It's like the work of a careful archaeologist who really takes care with the word of God, with the cultural context, both the Jewish and the Greco-Roman context, and really takes care as well in, in... in how he brings what he's learning to our our cultural moment, and we just want to honour that that gift, that teaching, and that role modelling himself of a, a peaceful and quiet life. And I bless us all to be able to learn and grow in you, in the truth, to be able to discern truth from error, to resist heresy, and to grow in our knowledge of of who you really are. And I bless us as well in communities, whether at Hope or in other Christian communities, to grow in deep peace, quietness, reconciliation. And for all, anyone in leadership that we lead in a way that is kingdom leadership, that's servant leadership, in such a way that everyone flourishes under our care. Thank you, Lord, that it's such good news following you. The, the answer is always going to be good news. Amen. Amen.